What is up, everyone? We are back with another episode of Shaping the Culture, and today we've got a special guest with us. Uh, he's pastor of the Bridge Church in New York City, uh, and he is someone that I have been listening to, reading from, trying to help me understand what's going on right now. We've got with us Russell Berry. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Man, it's an honor and privilege to have you on here. I'm excited for today's episode and what you're going to share with us uh, here on the on the episode. Um, first of all, 2020 has been a ridiculous year. It's been a crazy year. Mm-hmm. So much going on. Uh, I wanted to ask how you are doing and how you've managed. You're in New York City where uh, a lot of the madness took place. And so how are you holding up? How are you feeling? How are you reflecting on this past year? Yeah, um, I have a a tradition of on I journal a lot. So on the 31st of December, I usually do a year in review for myself just to kind of take a look back. And it's really amazing to think about how like much different the first three months of my reflections were where, you know, um, it was pretty much life as usual. I'm in seminary. So I'm, you know, focusing on, you know, learning Greek or, um, you know, speaking on different things, um, you know, and Ahmad Arbery, you know, I think, you know, hearing a little bit about that story prior to March and I mean, to June um, and uh, other situations. And then, of course, COVID changes everything. And um, especially here in New York City, where it was, it felt apocalyptic. It felt like the world, like, I mean, just the amount of death, um, the amount of uh, just shutting things down and being, you know, isolated. I mean, and we had 36 hours at our church, at the Bridge Church to, uh, when, from when Governor Cuomo made the announcement, hey, no public gatherings. That was on a Thursday or Friday. And we had to figure out by Sunday what, you know, we, you know, what that would look like for us to, to do church online. And uh, fortunately, you know, we were able to pivot in that way. But in the meantime, yeah, as I think about uh, 2020, I think about um, the fact that, you know, we were resilient, um, but there was a lot of loss this year too. And I think, um, so I've been thinking a lot about the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are they who mourn for they shall be comforted. Um, it's, it's important to mourn the losses, but it's also important to take in the fact that we have had experienced comfort. And even in the same year, there's a vaccine and there's light at the end of the tunnel. And there's an aspect of thinking, okay, the, you know, in some ways, you know, we can at least have hope that in, by this time next year, you know, next year, 365 days, we'll have more of a semblance of, of norm- normalcy than we've had so far. But um, yeah, so personally, um, just trying to, uh, you know, live in this new reality and, um, you know, doing a lot of Zoom and a lot of, uh, you know, meetings that way. Um, but it, it's been good. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. What a, what a great way to put it. Um, you, you touched on the things that happened around Ahmad Arbery and, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, that, that was tragic. And then you, you move, uh, you move on in the year and you see, what happened with Breonna Taylor, yeah, Floyd, and you know I'm from Minnesota, so that hit, yeah, that hit home. Oh, it. I mean, I think George Floyd's murder was 
I mean, it was obviously the flashpoint for a lot of us. I know for me, even personally watching that video, it was traumatic in a way that no other videos that I had seen, I, you know, where I don't usually make it a habit of watching it. I did not think I was about to watch a death on, on the video when I was watching it. I thought it, you know, I didn't expect that. And um, no. the George Floyd, that, that was really, even for our church, we ended up organizing a protest and that 5,000 people ended up coming to over a hundred churches. And these are all, you know, what you would call, you know, Orthodox, you know, even evangelical churches. And, um, and it was, it was definitely a, a, a powerful moment in the midst of a pandemic and wearing masks and trying to be as conscious as you can in the midst of that. So yeah, it was a pretty intense time. So I can only imagine what that was like for you. I mean, what was that like, you know, in Minnesota in May and in June, you know, from your standpoint? Yeah, no, it was, it was crazy. I just, um, yeah, there, there was just a lot going on. Um, yeah, I, like you, I didn't, I didn't know that I was going to be watching a death, uh, when I was watching mm. that video. And I just remember being, um, deeply saddened and I just remember feeling uncomfortable and, uh, yeah, it, it just got to a point where I know up until that point, you know, social distancing was the thing. Nobody ever went out, but I, I was like, man, I can't be at peace sitting at home. Like I just had to be out protesting. I was like, if I catch COVID, okay, I know it sounds irresponsible, but it was just one of those things where I had Damn. to up there and say my peace and I had to stand for what was right. And yeah, our church, was really involved we went and helped clean the streets we protested we helped serve uh we gave we did whatever we could do and um yeah it was just uh it was a crazy time and uh in that time there was a lot of things that were being said on social media um there's a lot of things that we were uh yeah championing and trying to fight for and really trying to help people see that jesus cares about justice that the gospel um, and justice are not at odds, but you actually see a demonstration of justice on the cross, um, where Jesus doesn't ignore our sin, but he takes care of the sin mm. um, by putting Jesus to death, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I think for us, it was a lot of, you know, we, we had to pivot as well with our sermon series and different things like that. And, and so, but one of the things uh, that came up, though, as we started to engage in these conversations on justice, uh, you know, a lot of us, we just were heartbroken and we wanted to, you know, be part of the solution. This term critical race theory started to pop up. And uh, unbeknownst to me, right, I had no idea what that, I still, to be honest, I really don't know what that is. I'm still trying to understand it. Um, but yeah, there was just a lot of things thrown our way, a lot of titles placed on us. Um, we were just genuinely trying to speak up for what we believed was the heart of God, and uh, you know, mourning with those who mourn and standing up for what's right. And so, um, yeah, critical race theory came to the picture. And uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, you know, I wanted to talk with you about this because um, as I'm hearing your story, reading your articles and watching your interviews, it sounded like you had the same uh, story where you were just starting to stand up for what is right and these labels were placed on you. And so what was your first experience with the term critical race theory and uh, what, what unfolded from there? Yeah. And, and just for context, um, I graduated with a degree in Africana studies and sociology mm -hmm. from the University of Pennsylvania. And so my academic background was very much steeped in analyzing culture and race and, you know, from a historical and social and social science standpoint, that was what I studied. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, I was exposed to a lot of different, 
you know, thought patterns and perspectives, you know, reading from everyone from W.E.B. Du Bois to Cornell West to, you know, engaging with ideas of Afrocentrism and Malefe Asante and just a whole host of things. Right. And so, you know, I, I was pretty grounded in a perspective on, you know, some of these important conversations and and really re-engaged many of those things um, in the wake of, you know, the kind of current movement that really, I would say, kind of uh, was launched through Trayvon Martin's death and then later Michael Brown and Ferguson and all that. So um, what I began to notice um, in some of my posts where I would try to make an appeal for that, you know, hey, this God has something to say about justice because it's true. It's just in the Bible that uh, some of the replies at the comment section would accuse me of being a critical race theorist. And I was kind of like, that's weird. I don't know what that means, but whatever. And so it happened a couple of times. So then I was like, well, let me just Google this and, and, and kind of read up on it. And, um, and so, you know, and I've read it and I'm, uh, I'm just applying biblical principles, um, but whatever. And then it started to happen enough uh, that I decided, you know what, I just, I'm tired of responding in piecemeal fashion to these different posts that come up. Let me do a deep dive yeah. and then write something so that I don't have to explain this anymore. So my idea was I'll write something and it ended up being, it got longer and longer as I wanted to give as much historical uh, perspective on the nature of conversations about ideology and to a point where it was like eight pages. And so I don't even call it an article, I call it an essay. And I thought no one was gonna read it. I thought it was just gonna be something. I just put it out on my own platform and was just like, all right, boom. Yeah. And it was unbeknownst to me, it was happening at a time where a whole lot of people, that conversation was just getting started. And so from there, people began to engage with it. And I began to get, you know, asked to speak about it more, ended up on the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierley and Neil Shinvey. Yeah. And then from that wrote, follow-up from my experiences processing this whole situation uh, called uncritical race theory, which I feel like is kind of the underlying issue at all when it comes to this. So that's kind of been my my experience with it. Um, it's, it's been a interesting and somewhat, uh, un, you know, uh, <laughs> unprovoked uh, in conversation to be engaged in, but here we are. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. For sure. That's awesome. So from your studies, I mean, you you yeah. really dove deep into this. You started reading up, writing right. an essay on everything. Uh, what, what did you find? Like, how would yeah. in terms like what, what would you say critical race theory is? Yeah. So I'll just start off by just reading from. I think a pretty reliable source of from introduction to critical race theory by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, who uh, they're both considered leading uh, scholars uh, in this field. And uh, it's important to note, by the way, that uh, historically, um, you know, most would say that uh, Derek Bell, who's a, a legal scholar uh, and, you know, started you know, even in this book, uh, Introduction to Critical Race Theory, uh, they credit him as kind of being the father of 
of, of, of critical race theory. He and other scholars began using the phrase in the 1970s really as a takeoff on critical legal theory. And that's important because it was really a branch of legal scholarship uh, that essentially challenged the, the current notion of judicial neutrality. This was what was happening. So Bell was a NAACP um, legal activist who was one of those cadre of uh, legal activists who were trying to live out and play out Brown versus Board of Education and other uh, major civil rights acts. And what they what he found was that so you know was that there was still twenty years later Brown versus Board happens in 1954. Um, twenty years later, they're still fighting an uphill battle, and it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought that once we won the legal you know, these major legal decisions that that would be enough and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so he started to realize that, okay, this is the paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. The prior mentality was that the American legal system as a whole and just laws in general were usually neutral, but there were these occasional instances of explicit racially charged laws that needed to be challenged and then, you know, changed yeah. for there to be freedom. And once those things happen, boom, you're done. So like maybe out of a hundred, if we look at a hundred laws, maybe there's four or 10 or 15 that are racist. And then that's what we challenge and then move those away. Yeah. But the very uh, stubbornness of the, intransigence of the system specifically so brown versus board you know he's in boston at the time he takes up a, a job as a teaching position in the harvard legal department legal studies and the people are boston was one of the most violent places where people resisted busing busing was the kind of practical policy solution to ending segregation in schools, yeah. right? So you can't separate busing from Brown versus Board of Education. It's essentially the, the, the practical application of it. Um, there was also, uh, he was coming across black families that were like, I don't want my kids to be bus because I see all these white parents and families who are violently attacking the buses, the bus drivers and all this. And it just caused them to really think about it differently and go, maybe it's not just a law here and there. Maybe it's a actual systemic issue in the way certain things are framed that we need to kind of challenge, you know, and, and look at it differently. And yeah. so from that, um, there are kind of emerged several tenets of, of what would become critical race theory from a, a, a legal studies uh, perspective. Yeah. Um, you want me to break that down? No, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Cool. Sure. All right. So I'll, I'll just quote, uh, it's because this is interesting. This is important from from introduction to critical race theory that uh, in the intro uh, section F, it says basic tenets of critical race theory. I'm just going to read it. Mm -hmm. What do critical race theorists believe? Probably not every member would subscribe to every tenet set out in this book, but many would agree on the following propositions. First, that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. Right. And so it's one saying that, hey, this is a normal experience of people in, in America. And second, that um, white over color ascendancy, they call, serves important purposes, both 
psychic and material for the dominant group. So this, this one says it's not merely in financial or material gain, but also there's a certain psychological benefit, so to speak, uh, of, of white supremacy, essentially. Yeah. Uh, third, that race and races are products of, of social thought and relationships. So this is the whole idea that race is a social construct, that it, it's, it's, it's not real in the sense that there's a, such a thing called race objectively, but that it has uh, been constructed to create benefits for some and disadvantages for others, the very nature of race, which makes it different than ethnicity or culture, which you know are really based in heritage and, 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 and other things. Um, fourth, the dominant society racializes different minority groups at different times in response to shifting needs, such as the labor market. And so what this says is that the concepts of race actually change over time. We saw this in South Africa, where they had apartheid system, where there were white South Africans, there were Indians, people from East Asia, India, then there were coloreds, uh, who were a mixture of like, that's actually a term, uh, not an antiquated term that we use in America, but there was actually like a racial category that still exists called the coloreds, which are a mix of Afrikaners, uh, Africans, uh, Indian, and some of the indigenous population in South Africa, who were also a mix of folks. And then there were the blacks. But then there were, uh, problems started to emerge because uh, they started doing business in Asia. And so they started having Japanese people live in South Africa and they didn't fit in the construct. And so they literally made them honorary white people. Wow. <laughs> like that was their title yeah. because it just had to fit into a new construct. So that's the nature of uh, that point that it shifts and changes over time. Um, the fifth intersectionality, uh, you know, is an important concept that says, um, essentially that there are multiple layers of identity that impinge and impact the way that people experience race. So black women experience uh, the concept of race and racism differently than black men or, you know, uh, Latino women, Latino men, other, you know, kind of categories uh, as well. Uh, class, gender, sexuality, all of these things would play into this idea of intersectionality. Um, and then six, voice of color thesis, because of different histories and experiences to those of white counterparts, matters that white people are unlikely to know must be communicated to them by racialized minorities. So this is the idea of lived experience, which is, and you know, uh, something that's been somewhat controversial in Christian set circles, the idea that there are certain, um, almost like to use, uh, you know, kind of truths that are more readily obvious to people of color living in a racialized society than they are to someone living in a dominant culture society that were you know and so um and that's not to say that they can't know these things but they're just not as immediately apparent because he talks about um double consciousness and he says that you know the black person doesn't just think about themselves but they also have to think about themselves in the context of how white people see them in order to even survive in a racialized society. So that would be, I, I think that was, that's a fair, uh, you know, documented definition of, uh, of critical race theory, but here's the challenge with it. There's two challenges that this poses. One, notice the very, after it asks the question, what do critical race theorists believe? 
even if they're saying basic tenets, it says probably not every member would subscribe to every tenet set out in this book. Yeah. But many would agree to the following propositions. So even the basic things that they say, hey, these are basic, they even give room to say, but not everybody agrees with all of these things, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that while Delgado and Stefanczyk and, and Bell are primarily legal scholars, that people have taken that term and that and some of the ideas of race being or racism being ordinary, you know, all of those things, um, social construction of race, and have applied them in other uh, academic disciplines like education, uh, like sociology, like other fields, and use them in different ways. And so it's so broad now that what people mean by it is actually much different as well, which is uh, part of the complexity of of talking about it but um and also part of the peculiarity and mystery and you know kind of strangeness about why this became such a fascination uh among white evangelical christians in particular yeah no for sure that's so good when you're when you're breaking down those different tenets that make up critical race theory mm -hmm. um is, is there any that sticks out to you that you would feel like is inconsistent with the word of god or do you feel like uh, a lot of the things that are said are yeah, pretty yeah. spot on, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, again, um, it's important to say, like, it depends on that. That's a longer conversation that depend on what people mean by certain words. Right. Like, and this is where it's a longer, it's a more nuanced conversation than it often happens in a, in a Christian context um, uh, in terms of analyzing uh, different pieces of it. Um, so in my first essay, uh, Critical Grace Theory, where I apply the concept of common grace to say, hey, in other fields, we see value in, 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 in ideas that, you know, people who don't necessarily come from a Christian or biblical worldview that they have and, 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 and say, hey, yeah, I can eat the meat and spit out the bones. Like I can do that with psychology. I can do that with philosophy. There's whole books from Christians responding to postmodernism, responding to psychoanalysis, responding to either capitalism or communism and saying, here are things that are consistent. Here are things that are inconsistent. Strangely, when people get to critical race theory, there's there's been much more hand wringing about that. But so on a, on a very broad level, on kind of the most like just taking you know those principles at face value, I think that there's not necessarily anything innately uh, contradictory. I think when you start to zoom out um, to where some of the I guess, extreme versions of interpreting some of these things can go. So for example, uh, I mentioned the, uh, what some people refer to as the voice of color thesis, which is the idea that because of different histories and experiences uh, to their white counterparts, I'm reading this from a summary of Derek Bell's um, on the Wikipedia page, matters that white people are unlikely to know must be communicated to them uh, by the racialized minorities. Now, some people being influenced more by a postmodern deconstruction of truth in general will take that to say, yeah, and that's why nobody can know truth. And there is no, you know, there are certain things that are just unknowable, you know, that are intrinsic and that, um, and that is all relative or it's all, you know, kind of, um, 
not based on any kind of absolute certainty of facts that exists in the in something called reality. That clearly is contradictory to a Christian worldview that says, no, there is such a thing as absolute truth. And God is knowable and aspects about his truth are knowable. Um, and yet at the same time, I can say I will never be able to know what it feels like to give birth because I'm not a woman. Right. But Empathize I that and go, man, that that's a difficult scenario. And I can change my behavior so that when I see a pregnant woman, you know, holding groceries, I don't just walk through the door and just expect her to, you know, close the door before she gets there saying, oh, well, her experience is, in life is just like me. I can still open the door for that person and try to be a, you know, a conscientious and compassionate person of the fact that somebody is experiencing challenges or experiences that I don't. Um, but that's not the same as experiencing the same thing. So I think that there are some limitations there. Um, in the space of intersectionality, which is probably the other uh, aspect of controversy, um, because uh, there are some who, many in, in, in you know, fields that you, we would you know, classify in the social sciences that would also um, essentially say that um, homophobia as they define it uh, which would basically be anything less than a complete celebration and, and, and embrace of LGBT identity and expression of said identity um, is, uh, is, is part of the problem of a kind of um, racial struggle. Like there's some that would feel that way. And, 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 and so that from that standpoint, a Orthodox Christian uh, historical definition or understanding of, of, of uh, what one should do with oneself or how one should see themselves uh, would, would be contradictory to that. Now, again, that's not all critical race theorists. That's, I can't even put a number on what a percentage that would be because it's such a broad field. Um, but that would be something where I would say as a, someone who holds to an Orthodox historical Christian worldview that, um, you know, I would disagree with, but in the same way, and you know, I can still recognize the truth of the fact that there, and I think we have to recognize um, the truth of the fact that um, there are aspects of struggle that uh, the LGBT community have uniquely faced of oppression, of persecution, of violence, and we should speak out against those things. And um, and, and there's a way that we can um, do that and, and still hold to, in a, hold to uh, a, uh, a historic Christian uh, tradition as it relates to uh, sexual ethics or behavior in the same way that I would can um, support someone uh, who doesn't hold that view as it relates to abstinence before marriage. Like, you know, we do this all the time in the public sphere. And yet those are kind of the hot button topics that cause a lot of uh, concern and angst about what, uh, accepting or resonating with different ideas of critical race theory means um, for Christians. Yeah, for sure. No, that's so good. And, and you, you said this in interviews, you said this in some of the essays that you've written, but you know, you, 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 you see the value of some of the tenets, but you, you're still holding on to your core beliefs. You're not, you're not throwing the Bible away here. You're not <laughs> right. what God calls to be true, true. And so one of the things that, you know, you said is, you know, the history of America is, you know, we're more fascinated with critiquing, um, yeah, the call against, um, you know, racism rather than racism itself. Uh, this idea that, 
uh, where we, we would rather sit and debate. I mean, we, we could have spent more time talking about the issues that are plaguing our black and brown brothers and sisters, but we're having this conversation instead. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, I, I think the issue is a little bit deeper here. And so I wanted to get your, your take on yeah. it. What, what do you think the distraction is? Like, why do you think we're having this conversation um, instead of um, the, the conversation that actually does need to take place? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, and for your listener, I, I mean, we have to just deal with and, and address and define what is critical race theory and, and, and do that just to help people understand it. But the reality is that essentially it's a red herring. It's a it's a it's a non-issue issue that has kind of been uh, created um, and that follows. So I was trying to understand this. And uh, so I went uh, after the critical race theory article and I was like, let me understand what were the arguments about other social issues that face Christians of their day. So I went back to uh, the Civil War and I read uh, Mark Knoll's book, uh, Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And I and in the book, he explains the uh, pro-slavery Christian and believers Christians. Right. And what he you know, kind of found was that um, the. Christian, the argument one was that Christian abolitionists were following the culture and not the Bible. And, uh, you know, and what they found was obvious support in, in, in the Bible for slavery. So they felt they, and the second argument was that the American slavery was based on a biblical doctrine of race, that, that actually race based slavery was biblical because of, you know, Curse of Ham or just other kind of arguments. So I thought that was interesting. So then I said, well, let me see what, so the first one is y'all not actually being authentic. You're, you're being more influenced by the culture than you are by the Bible. And the second one is how we're living is actually biblical. Yeah. So then I was curious about the white American Christian response to the civil rights era. So I went to um, our friend Jamar Tisby in his book, The Color of Compromise and, and read some of the uh, research he had done looking at primary sources and I saw again, the first argument, Christian civil rights activists were following the culture and not the Bible when they were advocating for civil rights and integration. That was the argument that people like Christian prominent evangelical leaders like Dr. G.T. Gillespie, uh, who was um, president of a, a seminary, uh, Bob Jones Sr., who founded Bob Jones University and was considered one of you know, the most prominent uh, evangelical leaders of the time. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the, the, their thing. And then the second one was that there was no systemic racism to confront. There, there was, that was the other resistance um, to the issue of uh, civil rights. Um, Gillespie and, 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 and Jones would actually argue black people had it better in the South in 1950s and 60s than black people in all, any place else in the world. So they should be happy. And, uh, and so that was kind of the argument. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, these are the same arguments that are being made today. Yeah. And in the uh, article, um, so what I discovered was that because people have a uncritical race, the uh, uncritical theory of race, yeah. everything looks like critical race theory in its most extreme form. Yeah. 
that the reason why we're talking about critical race theory, the reason why, especially in white evangelical spaces, is such a big deal is because like Bob Jones Sr., like Gillespie, like the uh, you know pro-slavery arguments in the past, they felt like there was no problem here to confront and that the Christians who were saying that there was a problem were being more shaped by Marxism and communism. Literally, that was the arguments that um, Jones and Gillespie was making than they were the Bible. Yeah. And I just was like, wow, that's really interesting that you see the same uh, accusation and the same you know, response uh, over and over again. Yeah. And, uh, and I think in, in all of those cases, just like time will show that uh, the abolitionists were wrong. Um, I mean, the abolitionists were right and the pro-slavery uh, Christians were wrong. Um, same thing with the, you know, uh, civil rights era activists who are Christian were right and the segregationists were wrong. That in the same way, we'll see the same thing with this current move of, uh, of justice, of social justice and its emphasis that some are considering to be so terrible, but actually are very consistent with the scriptures. Yeah. No, that's good. I love it. It's, it's so crazy because history does repeat itself and you see the same de uh, debates happening. You see the same pushback. Um, you know, one of my questions I wanted to ask you was, as we engage in these conversations, how do we break the cycle? Uh, because as you just mentioned, it's literally the same accusations, the same things that are being said, uh, the same responses. And it kind of makes you wonder, did, did we really come as far as we think we did? Um, hmm. And, and I think this even speaks to how uh, systemic racism works, right? It's uh, nowadays, it's a lot more subtle, but it's still in there. And a lot of the ideologies that were, uh, you know, had then are still had today or, you yeah. know, people still yeah. have. And so, yeah, how far did we really come and how do we break this cycle? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. It's a great question. And I think there's several layers. I, one, you know, there's a statement, you know, many people know the, the old saying, those who don't know their past are doomed to repeat it, right? And um, so for me, I find the importance of just knowing our history. Um, so of your faith tradition, like at the story of the past, like the church that you're a part of, or the, the move that you're a part of, one of the biggest challenges that makes this hard in evangelicalism, and by the way, when I say evangelicalism, because there's a lot of what does that mean uh, in 2020, 2021? What I mean is um, a historic tradition starting back to from about like at least the Moravians and John Wesley in the 18th century that saw value in building a movement of collaboration and support among Christians that were uh, trans-denominational and that were... Um, supportive of each other in spite of those things. And that emphasize what one uh, sociologist, I can't remember his name to give him credit, but it's kind of emphasized these four things, uh, a cruciform, which is focused on the, the cross uh, of Christ is kind of the central theological tenant. Um, evangel uh, what likes to share their face evangelistic, um, also focused on a, a, having a high view of scripture as Bible is God's word, and then invested in social action. These are four of the tenets of what are considered evangelicalism, lowercase e evangelicalism, not capital E evangelical as in kind of a certain social political movement of Christians that you could kind of has a smaller slice of that. But in any case, so 
one of the problems with us in America is that we don't tend to see ourselves historically because we're we're birthed out of a young nation that saw itself as kind of uh, being new and fresh. So, you know, when you go to Europe, you, 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 you know, you see buildings that are a thousand years old. You go to Africa and you hear stories and traditions that go back m- millennia or Asia, same thing. And, 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 you know, in the American Western culture, there's this idea that like, we just started stuff. And so it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder for us to think about ourselves in a cultural and a historical context. Um, but I think that's important theologically because it, it, it helps us to shave off our blind spots. If I don't know like why I do the things I do, then it's hard to even point back to, oh, this is where that comes from, like an altar call. I used to just think this is what we do. Altar, every Christian throughout time has always at the end of church, if they wanted to invite people to come to Jesus, did an altar call where the preacher said, the doors of the church are open, come forward. And, and then, you, then you realize and you learn like, oh no, that was uh, innovation from the great awakening. And, that, that, and, and again, not that it's wrong. It's just that it's helpful to know that. So I don't judge when I see my, you know, Presbyterian brothers and sisters and they don't do that. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with y'all? Aren't y'all about having people come to Jesus like I am? And so there are these things that we, we are not even aware of ourselves to even know. And so I think being aware of ourselves is important. I think um, really going back and recognizing that race and racism um, is something that is baked into the fabric of American, I mean, our documents, our founding documents, like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and not just those, but the Supreme Court decisions and the policies that happen over time. I mean, literally, I mean, we've uh, even if you look at the starting line as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? Like, um, and I would say that there's still a whole lot that had to happen after that. But even still, even if you, even if I gave you that, yeah. that's still what sixty like years out of a whole history that starts from 1776 as a nation, and even before that, from 1619 when you talk about the first Africans who were brought over as slaves around that time, even before that. Yeah. So that's a whole lot to kind of undo when you start to realize why there's inequality in every system. And we see this during COVID. Why is it that black and brown people are dying at such high rates? Why is it that uh, segregation is still such a prominent form of our housing situations? And all these things layer on each other. And, and when we see that, then we can start to realize, okay, no, people aren't just making this up. It has actually been a key part of, of things. And so when you're able to do that, then you're able to more faithfully interpret the scriptures and apply them in today's world. Yeah, that's so good. I love it. Much to be said there, but there, there's a question I definitely wanted to ask you and I sure. before I forgot. Um, for, for Christians who say, um, forget about critical race theory. In fact, critical race theory has no significance. Uh, we only need the gospel. Um, the gospel addresses sin, <laughs> gospel addresses humanity, yeah. the gospel addresses our yeah. issue. Um, 
I want to know, like, what's your take on that? Because I don't, from what I understand uh, from this conversation I'm having with you and things I've read from you, um, you're not saying critical race theory is the answer. It's the gospel. You're just saying this is helpful. Uh, this can help us um, shed light. This can help shed light on um, how we got here, what's going on. Uh, but for those who respond by saying that's secular, there's nothing good in there. Um, or there is some good in there, but that's okay. We're going to leave that right there. Uh, what would you say to that? Because um, it is, I mean, that is uh, a lot of the response I see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right and, and yeah. And there's, and this is one of the things that I discovered, especially that was helpful in looking at um, uh, civil war as a theological crisis yeah. is that because um, one of the things that was f- fascinating about the book is he basically concludes and I had never thought about it this way before, but a fundamental shift happened in American culture because ultimately both sides were arguing that the Bible tells me that this is the right thing to do. And ultimately it wasn't the authority of the church. It was the military that determined the outcome of the solution, right? Which in and of itself, you know, just basically said, well, man, that may, it begs the question, well, you know, what does that mean for our ability to rightly understand and, and, and apply the truth of scripture? And, and I think the, one of the things that is a challenge that um, in the book, and, uh, he, and, and, and I think this is helpful because it, 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 it helps give a, a broader scope to the challenge. Yeah. So Noel, one of the things he does is he spends a chapter looking at international Christian response to the slave issue in America. Wow. So he he so he looks at Europe. He you know at in particular England, France. He looks at Catholic, uh, and and Protestant. And and the fascinating thing is like a lot of them are like, what are they doing over there? Like obviously, you ain't supposed to be keeping people as slaves in a Christian country. Like like it was this interesting distance um, that most it wasn't complete, but it was the overwhelming majority saw it. But because of uh, a particular ideology, I would say, or almost, no, I would say epistemological assumption um, called Scottish common sense realism, uh, which basically argued that understanding the world and everything in our Bibles were simply matters easily accomplished by regular folk without any need to appeal to sociological complexity, wrestle with the vast gap between modern and ancient Near Eastern culture and without much attention to how our social location tends to shape our hermeneutics. That is Scottish common sense realism. And that is a that is a unique byproduct of a post-enlightenment mentality about how to see the world. And it is very endemic in American consciousness in terms of how we tend to think about things. So what I'm saying by all those words is essentially that we tend to think. All I need is a Bible in me. I open up the Bible, I read a verse, and then I apply it to my world. And that gives me everything that I need to understand governance, medicine, science, history, you know, engineering. And of course, it's a incompatible understanding of reality with how things actually work, right? We're talking to each other on devices that are very complicated that somebody had to go to school to learn how to put together a computer to learn how to put together the things that we now take for granted and use. You can't, so it's a false dichotomy to say, well, which one are you going to pick? 
technology or the Bible? Which one are you going to pick? Your iPhone? Because you don't need all that. You're like, well, I want to learn how to use technology to leverage it for my church. Well, no, 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 no. All you need is the gospel. You know what I mean? Or if, or if we were sick right now, we're in the midst of COVID and there are scientists who work toward vaccines. And and it's like, well, what sense would it have made say, well, wait a minute. You don't need the vaccine. You know, I thought you, you don't trust God. You know, the, the, all you need is the gospel and prayer. And that's enough. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, God has given us knowledge to understand the world. And some of those insights are things that the Bible isn't designed to speak to. It's not that it's insufficient. It's just, it wasn't even meant to do that. Like, you know what I mean? Um, they're, they're all, they're like, where does the Bible, you know? And so, um, so I think that the, the notion that somehow there's a dichotomy between the, do I trust the gospel or do I trust critical race theory is, an, is, is just a, false dichotomy because the reality is that these are, are things that any under ways of understanding the world theories and this is a, another key thing because yeah. some people hearing this will go no 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 it's an ideology yeah. and I and I would counter to that by saying talk to a critical race theorist yeah. and ask them do you, is this a system a way of analyzing a social phenomenon called race or racism, or is this an all-encompassing ideology that determines the way that you look at the world? Nobody, almost nobody that I know yeah. would, nobody that I know would say, no, critical race theory is my epistemology for understanding reality. Now, what some people would say is that, well, it borrows upon or it leans on certain postmodern or you know, anti uh, or deconstructionist, I, you know, sentiments or Marxist understandings. And that is itself a uh, philosophy. And I go, it depends on the person. Because the ironic thing is that Derek Bell himself, who is widely considered the founder. So I went and I was talking, I was reading, when I was reading a Wikipedia article, and I read the footnotes. And I saw a footnote of a friend of mine who I knew from college who became a legal professor. So I reached out to him. I was like, Vinay, like, you know, you know, like, like I saw you in this article. He was like, oh, yeah, I was I was Derek Bell's last um, legal studies like fellow in his you know program where, you know, you have a fellow where a professor has like basically a teaching assistant that works with them in a class. I was like, really? I said, man, I'd love to hear from you because I'm so I you know, so we had this conversation and and this dude tells me because one of the things that Derek Bell is known for is his. Um, his approach to teaching was very different than it was story oriented. And it was, uh, and he very much emphasized student engagement and not just a usual Socratic method involving uh, a certain case law, certain things like that. Yeah. And I was like, and, and Vinay was like, yeah, he, he, he would tell me that he got that because of his relationship with Jesus. Like he was a very spiritual man and that he saw his work of challenging racism as part of his faith. I was like, get out of here. And he was like, yeah. So then I started doing some digging. He's like, I think he wrote a book about, uh, about his faith. This dude has a book, <laughs> Derrick Bell, the late Derrick Bell, about gospel choirs and his faith and, 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 and how the gospel relates to liberation. So I just thought it was ironic that the very person who's considered the founder of critical race theory is also was someone who was a committed Christian who saw their own outworking at, of, of their work as a expression of their faith. And he and my man, Vinay, said specifically, and this guy is not a Christian, Vinay, who is my friend. He says, um, yeah, he, he, he was impacted by a revolutionary, but it was Jesus Christ, not Karl Marx. Wow. So good. 
so good. <laughs> that's so powerful. Thanks for sharing that. I, I had no idea. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, I mean, we can, we can stay here all day and have, I mean, as you, you said a lot of great things and I wish I had time to pick at everything you said, uh, but we won't do that to you. Um, uh, a couple, I have just a couple more questions sure. before we wrap this up. Um, the first is, um, what would be your cha- challenge to those that are so quick to write off critical race theory? Like as you, mm-hmm. um, yeah, think through all of the things that you've thought through as you're reading and studying, right. having these conversations. Um, if you had a silver bullet, if there was just one shot at, at saying what you wanted to say to challenge those who oppose or think critical race theory has no significance or importance in this conversation, um, what would you right. say? Um, well, I think that I, I would redirect the, the energy and the emphasis because like I said, my initial premise, and it's not just a premise, this is a statement of fact that we both know from our own experiences, is that we don't have a burden about confronting injustice in our country because of critical race theory. We have that burden because A, we have experienced personally the injustice that exists in our world yeah. Um, yeah. B, because as we got serious about our faith, we also encountered the fact that Jesus cares a lot about justice. I mean, it's kind of hard to read and claim poor uh, freedom to the captive, you know, uh, you know, liberty to the oppressed, you know, uh, recovery of sight to the blind. It's hard to read, you know, Micah 6, 8, you know what I mean? You know, what does you know, a God require of you, oh man, but to, you know, do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly before your God. Um, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to see those things. Let justice roll down like a mighty stream, like uh, Amos talked about and, and somehow come to the conclusion that God doesn't care about justice. Yeah. Um, so it's something that God cares about. We, and, and so I, I would encourage people who are wrestling with the concerns of, of the culture and, you know, kind of maybe ways in which secularism is, 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 is challenging our, uh, the faith, which it is, I would, I would acknowledge that that's a, a challenge. And I mean, any statistics that you look at through Barna or other Pew, uh, studies will show that, you know, people are more and more, um, leaving the church and, 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 and even leaving a, a Christian worldview. I think the solution, the, the the solution of therefore we need to reject conversations about justice or you know or or deny or or see critical race theory as the problem is the, is a wrong solution to a legitimate problem that that we're experiencing as a church of of uh, of worldview drift you can say um, and I, I guess I would just say like let's focus on the actual fact of the matter that we just experienced in 2020, the largest movement of social uh, unrest and and protest that we've ever seen in our nation's history. And that wasn't because Breonna Taylor's parents were, got indoctrinated by uh, Karl Marx or by, you know, Derek Bell. It was because their precious daughter was killed in her in our apartment you know um that george floyd's widow didn't get involved in social justice because 
they read and or were inadvertently influenced by an academic theory, you know, coming out of, you know, some elite ivory tower. It was because they lost their, you know, the, the, the father of the, of her child. Like, and that I think is something that because of those of us who have experienced marginalization, we feel that intrinsically, we feel a certain communal loss that people who are in the center and the dominant culture don't often feel it in the same way. And so I think people try to come up with ways to make sense of their world that gives alternative explanations for why this phenomenon is happening. And, and, and for some reason, it's easier to attribute this wave of, uh, of, of compassion, of, of unrest, of, of emotion to this being deceived than it is an acknowledgement that there's a real problem. But I would just go back and say, look at the history of the civil rights movement and look at the history of your own faith tradition and its response to the civil rights movement. What's changed? This would be my silver bullet question, right? If we reckon, if you acknowledge that the white evangelical churches, the, the white moderate as, as King talked about in letter from a Birmingham jail, which was written to clergymen, mm-hmm. If you acknowledge that the their attempt to dismiss his urgency or his tactics was wrong, what's changed today? Like if you if you know that okay, the pro-slavery lobby that created some of the major denominations that we have today, yeah. if you're in the SBC and or Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church of America or any other number of major de- uh, denominations that were created around over the issue of slavery. I would just behoove you to ask, like, what has changed? What, what would, what in your theology has would cause you to come to a different conclusion about what to respond? And if somebody came, if you were pastoring a church in 1859, would you? Would it be the gospel mm. to proclaim freedom to the slave? Mm. What in your theological framework would give you the? justification to do that. If you were pastoring a church in Alabama in 1963, in the midst of a civil, uh, of segregation, what in your theological stream would you, would would prompt you, what would be the conclusion that you would say about what to preach on on Sunday? Um, I think that that, and, 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 and and the last part of that is, and this is, and this is not an indictment. I say this with passion, but I also say it with understanding this. Uh, I, I call it theology has to be a group project, right? Like um, some of us hate group, hated group projects in school because it required getting involved with other people. And, and sometimes they didn't put up their work. But when I read Ephesians 4, and it talks about how the unity of the faith is, 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 uh, is only attained through the maturity uh, uh, in the unit, the, the maturity of the saints is only attained through the maturity and the unity of the faith, right? Like our unity is a direct necess- necessary corollary of our maturity. We right. can't have full maturity if we don't have unity. And that's because we all bring different th- pieces and of insight into the, uh, to the truth of the gospel because God's mind is inexhaustible. And some of these things are, 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 are found, clues of understanding are found in other cultures that we might miss because of our own cultural understanding. And so I think we need each other in order to do this. And we, and we need to hear from and, and really be moved by voices that are different than ours. Yeah, so powerful, so powerful. I love that. Last question, what would be your encouragement? That was your challenge. Um, sure. Be your encouragement to yeah. the 
are yeah just trying to trying to see justice happen trying to yeah obey God. yeah um my encouragement would be the fact that um again i go back to the protests of uh, the prayerful protest that we called it back in june that uh our church you know helped lead and i thought about the fact like i said over 100 uh churches that you would identify as reformed as evangelical white black asian latino um that we were together and that they answered the call in an overwhelming way it ended up starting a uh, entity called pray march act that our lead pastor um james roberson uh started uh that basically is helping equip churches to lead through this aspect of being doing anti-racism work from a, a, a Christocentric lens. Um, I'm involved with the Anne campaign, uh, which is, you know, you know, put out a book, Compassion and Conviction, uh, looking at righteousness and justice, um, incredible book. Um, and the movement itself is garnering more and more uh, steam as many of us, you're not alone. Like there are people who get this who are in, and it's only growing as people see and, and, and want to respond faithfully to uh, what they are seeing around them. And so you're, you're not alone. This is a great time to be a part of this uh, journey. And so I would encourage you uh, to stay, hold fast, um, pick your battles. One of the things that I realized because you will burn yourself out if you continue to try to have debates with people who don't who's, who don't want to change their minds. And so you share with them some different resources and you keep it moving and you just try to really focus on developing yourself in the midst of that. Um, and one last part of that, I was able to participate in a um, documentary, an international documentary back when we could travel all over in 2019 called In Pursuit of Jesus. You can check it out. Uh, on my website, russellberry.com, and uh, it's on YouTube as well. But um, one of the things that we did was we went to five different continents. I went to South Africa, Argentina, Singapore, Sweden, uh, New York, and Israel. And the thing that was amazing was to see how much um, the body of Christ is looking globally um, differently and wrestling with these issues all over the world. And it's been a reminder to me that our world, our, the, the church is bigger than the obstacles or the impediments that we see in America. Um, Tim Keller once said that white evangelicals make up 3% of the world's church, 3%. And, and so I celebrate the white evangelicals who are supportive of this work and shout out to many of them who have uh, been of deep encouragement to me. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's important for us as Americans, sometimes we can be so myopic that we think that we're it. And it's kind of important to remember that uh, the church in Africa, the church in Asia, it makes up the predominant forces of the church right now. Uh, Dr. Uh, Soon Chara talks about this in his book, The Next Evangelicalism. And, um, and so it's not we got next for those of us of color, it's we got now. Yeah. And, uh, and so that is the challenge and the encouragement uh, to move forward. And, um, and anybody who wants to be a part of that process, you're more than welcome uh, as we go about this business um, that's the seed of which is planted through our devotion to Christ. Uh, individually, I love sharing my faith with people. Um, and the fruit of it is born out as we proclaim a kingdom 
that also reflects God being a sovereign, who is the prince of priests, who the government, uh, whose government has no end, as you know, and as we talk about in Isaiah. And so all of those things are true. It's the complexity and the richness of which is hard for us to grasp, but that's why we need each other to help hold it up, the glory. That's so good. Powerful. Yeah, love it. Well, thank you, Russell Berry, for joining us on Shaping the Culture. Um, I'm edified by this conversation. Um, thank you for your insight. Thank you for your dedication to learning and growing and offering yourself up uh, to be part of the solution. Um, so glad to have you on. Um, until next time, family, uh, peace and grace.